Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. For this month's focus on pediatric emergencies, we would like to focus on pediatric burns. And in this particular case, I want to focus at least a little bit on why burns are so destructive in pediatrics and focus a little bit more on um, some of those treatment modalities and kind of the long-term treatments that we come with uh, with kids who have suffered burns. So burn injuries in children, it's been identified as still a problem that you know, goes on along, around the globe. It is classified as a major problem in a lot of cases. Nearly a fourth of all burn injuries occur in children under the age of 16. And a vast majority of those burn victims are actually under the age of five. And a minority of the burn injuries here that end up being serious, they absolutely need specialty burn center um, support. These cases are critically ill children and they require a coordination of everything from specialty surgeons, specialty anesthesiologists, um, intensivists, respiratory therapists, um, people that specialize in skin grafts, people that specialize in these patients that just have such nuanced characteristics. The other thing to really kind of point out with this is the causes of these burns also have very specific treatment modalities with them as well. Scald injuries, they tend to be the most common type of thermal injury in patients under the age of five. Now, we extrapolate that information and why might that be? Well, first off, if we're talking about those toddler ages up until the age of five, they know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to understand the consequences of their actions. They've also entered into the realm of eating liquids and solid foods. They want to try new things. They see mom and dad doing things. They're around us and shadowing us in our environment. And we commonly handle dangerous or hot substances, especially like when we're cooking or we put things on the table. Um, They're around other people, like maybe in restaurants or other things like that. And they tend to either be underfoot or um, in an area where they might be able to be tall enough or resourceful enough to grab a stool and come by and tip something on themselves when we're not watching or grab something at the table or roughhouse at the table in the case of my two uh, regrets that I have at home. The possibility of them coming in contact with something that is hot and a liquid um, increases. And not only that, but handling those sorts of substances when they're not quite cooled off, when they're not readily understanding that this just came out of the microwave or this is a boiling pot, or maybe that's mom and dad's uh, food source here and I shouldn't grab this or pull down on it or something like that, might expose them to a situation of accidental injury. And it's estimated that these scald injuries account for over 65% of cases 
of children that end up needing hospitalization and critical specialty care because of how these injuries uh, can occur. Now, this changes a bit. Over the age of five and up to the age of 16, 56% of injuries now transfer away from scald injuries and they go to literal uh, injuries involving fire or flame. And now we start extrapolating some of that information. Now I have somebody who knows enough to analyze the world and they're curious about the, uh, about the rest of their world or they're around siblings or they're around things that are potentially combustible or that um, maybe they end up getting involved with. Um, you know, whether it just be like fascination or curiosity of like finding things like clicker lighters or matches, um, things or sources of fuel like gasoline or propane or um, fireworks or things like that as we get older and start doing things um, this can easily start leading us into areas where we might get burned. We also start getting into situations where I can start using motorized devices that require fuel or propellant or require things uh, to make it move or go boom or go forward. And right about this time and age is where kids start to experiment with even those types of injuries or, or things that leads to injuries involving open flame and fire. You know, and, you know, once we start looking at that, now I'm dealing with either, you know, like a steam burn, water type burn, uh, deep tissue cooking, like that sort of stuff versus like literal charring and um, tissue that ends up igniting or catching fire or flame, you know, and, you know, child abuse does come to mind when we start talking about this and, you know, we start thinking about burns, at least that's the way it was presented in EMT and paramedic school, was looking at burns and looking at things like uh, dipping or looking at things like um, cigarette burns, cigar burns, um, like intentional type of hot iron type things that might occur that might be a form of child abuse. And, you know, those typically, though, those are a smaller number of cases. However, there may be more of those types of injuries that are out there that we just don't know about because, it, I mean, really with children under the age of two, it's estimated that um, only about 20% of actual cases get reported to state social services for investigation and um, only a, a very small percentage of those are ever followed through with and determined to be um, abuse type cases. Obviously, our goal when we're looking at these patients and when we're trying to figure out is this an abuse case or not, or a neglect case or not, when we're looking at this, we just need to have a higher level of suspicion looking for, you know, the possibility of how this might happen to just being very, very uh, upfront with our documentation about what we might see. I mean, all instances of pediatric um, burns, especially uh, they need to have some level of uh, investigation done, even if it's just a surface level. Hey, how did this happen? And just running that through, you know, a couple of minds, just trying to figure out the likelihood of what might happen here. I mean, mistakes happen, but at the same time, we're responsive adults and responsive parents. They strive very hard to try to prevent these sorts of things from happening. And, you know, there is definitely a modicum of 
uh, questionability when it comes to children who get such severe injuries like burns. When we start classifying burns, you know, for a while we were classifying burns with first, second, and third degree, maybe even fourth degree burns. And that's kind of been replaced now by a classification system that reflects the need for surgical therapy um, and kind of what tissues are involved with that. So superficial and partial thickness burns, deep partial thickness burns, full thickness burns, and fourth degree burns. A superficial burn is classified as a burn that affects like just the epidermis. That's that sunburn, right? Without involvement of the dermis, uh, the dermal layers below it. Usually just prevents with that redness and a little bit of swelling to the skin, pain, that sort of thing. That partial thickness burn, this is both the superficial and um, deep partial thickness burns. This involves the entire epidermis and variable parts of the dermis. The superficial part, partial thickness burns presents with pain and redness and blanches and blistering, whereas in contrast, the deep partial thickness burns prevents, or presents only with pressure, a variable color of like red and white, and it doesn't blanch. It doesn't really go away. Um, this usually is kind of telling you that this area doesn't have blood flow to it anymore. The blistering that forms there, they require surgical therapy to release because these blisters are full thickness um, and they you know, involve like that full layer of the dermis. Full thickness burns um, affect uh, both the above and below layers. They're usually presenting with particularly leathery skin, but we haven't kind of got to the point of involving like the fascia and the muscle and the bone below that. Fourth degree burns involve that fascia, muscle, and bone, and um, they include kind of a ring all the way around it where you end up having the full thickness surrounded by partial thickness, even surrounded by um, the superficial burns that might uh, be there as well. And then when we try to look at these burns, the next thing that we're trying to figure out is where are they located? And really, what is our total body surface area that's involved with kids? And when we think about the rule of nines, we think about an adult. An adult, both the right arm and left arm, each one of those is 9%. The head, both front and back, is 9%. The chest is 18%, and the back is 18%. So the full torso is actually 36%. So 18 on the front, 18 on the back. The right leg in full circumference is 18%. Just the anterior surface or just the posterior surface is 9%. When we're talking about kids though, a lot of these are different because children have a different proportions of their, um, their trunk versus their limbs that uh, accounts for a different amount of their total body surface area, okay? So whereas the adult head, which the entirety of the adult head is 9%, a child, the entirety of the head is 18%. So a facial burn on a child is considered 9% and like the occipital portion of the head is considered 9%. Um, similarly with adults, the chest is 18%, whereas that's the same in the adults, and the back is also 18%. So um, with adults and children, the entire torso 
is considered to be 36% in total with 18 on the front, 18 on the back. The arms are also the same as the adult, 9% on the right arm, 9% on the left arm. So um, one of the biggest changes though between this are the legs. Whereas in the adult, you have these longer, thicker, meatier legs. Those are considered 18% for either leg. In a child, it's 13.5% for each leg. Now, a lot of times you'll already have charts um, that are helping you to calculate that. Another thing that's very interesting is if you're using ESO and you're using the assessments tab specifically, underneath the assessments tab, you will find an anatomical diagram. If you click on the anatomical diagram and you load the appropriate mannequin size, whether it be adult or child, and then you select the wound, first, second, or third degree burn, you can click different appendages and it will calculate your total burn surface area. And that's gonna be crucial for when we're starting to talk about fluid uh, or fluids on these patients and uh, even their prognosis for like what we're talking about here. So even though like we're, we're talking about superficial burns or we're talking about things that are on the superficial aspect of the body, you know, these burns absolutely affect the vital organs inside of the body. So when I have a burn and I suffer a burn, right, there's not only the mortality side that I'm worried about from infection, from electrolyte shifts, from dehydration, loss of um, uh, body heat, uh, the ability to regulate those things. There's the metabolic responses that happen inside of the body with really, really nasty byproducts that occur. That side effect of potential like um, uh, infection inside of those wounds. All of these things affect my mortality, right? If they're affecting the airway, I have to secure that airway before it swells. We're talking about maintaining the right kind of fluid volume and um, excretory processes with the kidneys to keep them from getting gummed up with all of these nasty byproducts of metabolism, right? But now I also have to balance that with the morbidity side, the suffering that comes from something like this, the overall pain that occurs from a burn, right? And the, the way that the body can be under stress with that pain also affects that patient's outcome. It's not just, ow, I hurt and I don't wanna hurt anymore. Remember what happens to your body when you feel pain. You go into the fight or flight response. You have this catecholamine dump that occurs inside of your body, right? And that absolutely affects that patient's outcome and prognosis. And that also becomes a goal to shoot for, is reducing that pain response so that the body has a chance to even try to rest and heal or to do things like that. So immediately after the injury is sustained, there's a variety of vasoactive mediators and catecholamines and inflammatory markers that are released into the body, okay? But these also cause the capillaries to leak. They cause this loss um, of protein and the development of this interstitial edema. So through all of these releases, I now have swelling inside of that tissue. And that tissue, which is already damaged and potentially starving for blood and trying to uh, undergo some sort of like metabolism here, we now swell up 
all of the um, uh, feeder vessels that might be trying to feed that tissue inside of that area, right? In very large burns, these are gonna be greater than 40% total burn surface area, there is significant myocardial depression and hypotension that occurs because of this shift in fluid. Now, other things to consider now with these patients is we have the burn, what is going to present with this edema? Now, if we're talking about an arm or a leg and we're dealing with something that is circumferential, that's just like swelling a tourniquet around that uh, arm or around that leg. Um, there are procedures that sometimes have to occur with either debriding those areas or opening those areas up to allow them to swell and herniate outside of the skin, and then eventually that tissue will come back down. But if we limit that herniation if, or, or that swelling, and we don't allow it to herniate out through, um, you know, perhaps like a slit that is made in the skin itself to open up that compartment, we get compartment syndrome which is where that extremity now is risking its blood flow down to the extremities because it is swelled shut and has turned off the uh, blood flow to the area. And that edema now results in necrosis that uh, happens from that point down. Um, sometimes those types of situations require a surgical opening to be placed to allow that tissue to swell out, to allow blood flow to continue to travel beneath it. It might at first seem strange or weird or unwieldy, but the goal is to continue to allow blood flow to the area. Now, think about other things that could potentially swell, though. A flash burn to the face, the nares, the mouth, the trachea, um, like the larynx. I inhale those superheated gases in a fire or something like that. Those areas absolutely can swell. They don't swell immediately but they can swell over time as that wound tries to develop and as that edema starts to set in. I might have had an airway and then I lost it. That is not gonna be someone that we're gonna be able to just snake an ET tube through very easily. It might be that we need to preventatively uh, pre-intubate this patient, get that patient intubated before the swelling occurs inside of those airways, right? Things that might give us a clue that that's what we're dealing with. Soot around the nostrils, burned or singed skin around the nostrils or around the mouth. If you have that carbonaceous sputum, that word that we learned in school, right? Carbonaceous meaning sputum full of carbon, black, uh, sort of like carbon, perhaps for they were breathing in uh, uh, bits of this uh, fume or the smoke. Uh, that was in the area. Looking inside of the mouth and seeing that carbonaceous sputum inside of the mouth or burns to the lips, the inside of the mouth, guaranteed they took a couple hot breaths of what's going on there. Wet lung sounds, edematous lung sounds, fluid rising up, um, looking like that edema coming out of the lungs. We need to be ready to manage that airway in that patient. Other things that we then need to start thinking about here is vascular access. How are we going to get vascular access in a patient that has burns towards the areas that we're commonly looking for, right? Arms and legs burned. We don't necessarily want to start IVs through edematous tissue, right? It may be possible that we can get an IO in these sorts of cases. Look to the sides that are not burned. 
This may also include things like scalp veins. This may include things uh, like non-traditional sites like in the feet or in the ankles where we might wanna try to cannulate a vein enough to start fluids in on these patients. Remember that kids, you know, they also depend upon um, their renal system to be able to support themselves. And that renal system is absolutely everything when it comes to keeping their bodies functioning. So even in some cases, by giving these fluids, we're continuing to support the renal system, not allowing them to become hypotensive enough where the uh, kidneys are not getting enough blood flow uh, to promote their health and their well-being as well. They're also about to get bombarded with the byproducts of really nasty, toxic cellular metabolism. And we need to keep those kidneys functioning, keeping those kidneys in a way that allows them to um, get rid of all of these byproducts, okay? So the other thing that ends up happening here with this inflammatory stuff um, and the loss of protein, right, is we end up in this uh, catabolic state. Okay, which is um, a level of um, imbalance of energy use and energy availability. Okay? This further contributes to a loss of muscle protein, bone mineral density, and bone mineral content. And this can absolutely throw somebody into something like rhabdomyolysis, where they start degenerating their own muscle tissue and releasing some pretty nasty byproducts off into the body. Um, this will also truly affect them in a thermoregulatory way. Remember that patient who is hypoglycemic? What do they look like? They're pale, cool, and diaphoretic, right? Because they're not actively burning energy to help like, release heat and keep their bodies warm. In this presence of like, low energy state, because of uh, this insult, that patient can get cold very, very quickly. And uh, that patient's like core body temperature can just drop. Burned skin is unable to retain heat and water and the potential consequence of massive evaporation and fluid loss that results in everything that we've previously stated. Hypotension, renal in, uh, insult, cardiovascular insult, um, renal performance. Um, even just keeping them uh, warm enough to prevent, you know, clots from breaking down. From a respiratory standpoint, the burn injury results in a very complicated picture. With the initial management focused on securing a potential edematous airway, like we've reviewed here, but now we have this other side of it, where patients, will uh, once they're intubated, now we have swelling or we have stiffness in the lungs. Imagine the burn is across the chest. You have stiffness in the ability for that chest to rise and fall. That can absolutely lead to an acute respiratory distress sy syndrome or ARDS, okay? And um, there are some uh, needs to like watch for those sorts of things to occur long-term with these patients who end up um, with these sorts of inhalation injuries, just watching for the development of 
loss of respiratory performance. One thing we can do in EMS in the field is to identify airway injuries and notify the arriving hospital as early as possible. So we can have airway specialists, respiratory specialists already on standby and involved in this patient's care before they even arrive so that they can stay on top of those sorts of things. Pharmacological changes that happen inside of the patient's body also can have some uh, increase in problems in what we're doing with this patient. Um, once that patient has reached a level where their renal system is compromised, that actually changes the amount uh, or the types of drugs that we're able to use. It might even end up that these patients end up on dialysis to help them clear these sorts of things um, based on like toxins that are released from the uh, drugs that we might end up using to try to treat this patient's hypotension or pain or uh, trying to treat them to prevent infections. So when we're talking about fluids on these patients, the fluid requirements may be calculated using a couple of different formularies, okay? But one is the Parkland burn formula. And it's uh, a great basis for resuscitation, okay? We're looking at um, about four milliliters, uh, uh, four milliliters of Ringer's lactate per kilogram per percentage burn surface area burned, okay? And so what that really looks like is four mils of a fluid per kilo per body surface area, and one half of that is to be given during the first eight hours after the injury, and the next needs to be given over the next 16 hours. So this whole thing is based on a 24 hour time frame, right? So let's say I have a 40 kilogram person, right? So that's a, a patient that's right around 80 or 90 pounds. If I have a 40 kilogram person here, right? That person is gonna get 40 times four, right? So that's 160 times their body surface area, okay? So that's 160 milliliters times their body surface area. Let's say that person has a 10% burn um, on their body here. So we take 160 times 10, that's gonna be 1600 cc's of fluid, right? That I'm gonna need to deliver over 24 hours. The first half of that needs to be delivered in the first eight hours. So that's 800 cc's over the first eight hours um, after the injury occurs with the following 800 cc's being delivered in the next 16 hours um, over that. And the type of fluid administered is generally, it needs to be an isotonic crystalloid with the recommendation um, of the additional dextrose to kids. So that might even be like uh, um, dextrose in saline um, to try to keep that hypoglycemia at bay. And once we give this uh, fluid to the patient here, that's gonna help to support fluids going in and fluids coming back out. So that really also makes us wanna look at urine output on this patient. We wanna see one to two milliliters per kilogram per hour for children that are under 30 kilograms and 0.5 to one milliliter per kilogram per hour on any kid that's over 30 kilos, right? So over the course of an hour, I wanna see in that 40 kilogram patient, I want 40 to 80 uh, mils coming out of this patient. 
um, but no, no less than 20 to 40 do I want to see coming out of this patient during that, um, uh, during that care. That's going to tell me that I'm putting fluids in, they're washing things out, the renal system is still producing urine, and it's coming back out. We all know that when we let an IV run on a kid, that also has some very specific detrimental effects of overloading that child with fluid. So we have to see fluid in, we have to see fluid out over a period of time. Otherwise, the fluids are going in and staying, that fluid just gets third spaced even more. It might make that edema worse or might go into the lungs or might have some further developmental problems here. So I hope this is really pointing out just how complex this is gonna be. Why it's so incredibly important that um, once we take this patient and we transport him to the hospital, the numbers of specialists that are gonna be involved in this patient's care, I mean, it's just gonna exponentially grow. And the first 24 to 48 hours, the first 72 hours this patient is there are hypercritical for trying to be exacting and absolute on not missing a trick on this patient's care. Managing the airway, watching for development of ARDS, managing the patient's eyes and O's or inputs and outputs, making sure that um, fluid is there, looking for hypo, uh, hypoglycemia, hypothermia, managing that patient's pain long-term. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's gonna take a village to try to deal with this child. And when we're talking about this, this is why we end up needing to take kids and send them to a pediatric burn center. One of the best burn centers here happens to be in the Portland, Oregon area, and it is Randall's Children's Hospital uh, with Legacy Health. Um, their burn center uh, specializes in these kinds of things. Um, it may be that we're gonna start treatment at whatever your local hospital is, and then that patient ends up getting transferred to um, a pediatric burn center in order to have um, specialty care. If that burn center is full, they might even forego a local and go to a regional burn center um, that maybe even be in another state where that patient can receive critical treatment and get transported by an air medical unit uh, that's gonna continue some of these practices along the way in order to take that patient to the experts, to all of those resources, and you know, where that whole entire team can work in conjunction with each other you know, trying to work with that little life and trying to um, keep that patient not only comfortable, but look ahead and try to deal with problems before they end up becoming a bigger issue. So um, I highly encourage you to look at local protocol, look at local burn uh, resource areas. If you do happen to get involved with a pediatric burn, start potentially looking down the road. What's gonna be the complication of this? If it's isolated, okay, but expect that patient to have pain management needs. Expect that patient to have fluid management needs. Expect that patient to have thermoregulatory needs and expect that patient to do worse and prepare for that patient to do worse. If they don't, at least we've been proactive on the prevention side and notify the receiving facility as early as possible. So if they have access to pediatric specialists or getting their pediatric team involved and activated early, even if it means getting that next transport um, on standby, ready to go to take that patient to that critical regional uh, center, 
getting all those resources started as early as possible, that's how we're gonna do the best that we can for these patients. Recently, it's been published, maybe in a bit of a silver lining with all of this, that the correlation of total burn surface area to overall outcome of survivability has been improving dramatically secondary to development of these types of treatments in managing pain, in managing the airway, in watching for electrolyte disturbances and managing a patient's thermoregulatory nature or fluid shifts or providing early access to um, uh, treatments and procedures that helps to reduce the amount of toxins that are produced um, as the body goes through its healing processes and how end organ failure can be affected. Um, it's been estimated that right now the hallmark or maybe the benchmark of good survivability is anywhere up to 62% total burn surface areas um, that uh, patients can have uh, at least somewhat of a pretty good outcome. But after we kind of go above 62% of total burn surface area here, um, the clinical complications of uh, the patient ending in death um, dramatically increase after that level, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, to kind of put that into perspective here, you know, for a 62% burn, we're looking at a patient who has maybe an entire torso that's burned, that's 36%, plus both legs, uh, remember that's the uh, 13%, followed by, so that would be like the torso and the two legs. You know, if we start including even more tissue than that, then, you know, that patient is reaching uh, a much more difficult uh, survivability layer, but the lower the total burn surface area um, and having access to um, places that have very specific resources designed to deal with pediatric burns gives that patient a, a much better chance for survival. I know that kind of goes without saying, but even though in the moment we're looking at these children and we kind of get that moment of hopelessness or we get that idea of, well, what are they going to do for this patient? This patient might have a poor uh, prognosis. If their total burn surface area is less than 62%, um, it's pretty interesting that their survival percentage is, you know, greater than 60%, greater than 70% are in the survival ranges outside of that. Um, meaning that, I mean, greater than one half of that number of patients that has 62% or less survives uh, these wounds and survives you know, through all of the infection and anything else that might set in. So put that in the back of your mind that what we do in EMS and what we do and recognition and setting these patients up for transport, it has a major impact on what that number is. These patients need specialty care. We are part of that chain of survival. And anything that we can do to maximize that efficiency, 
activating the right resources, starting IVs, providing pain control, perhaps that's early airway control, um, thermally regulating that patient, starting them in on the Parkland burn formula, being very proactive about recognizing when we have injury patterns that uh, may continue to degrade and taking care of those injury patterns before they become um, a life threat. Maybe it's just something as simple as making sure that we're keeping those sterile burn sheets on top of a patient and controlling their pain and getting them to a, uh, a source of definitive medical care. That is amazing the way that that helps and impacts a patient's survival. So don't discount what we do and how we do it. And that even though in some of these cases it almost seems futile, it's not the case. In fact, for patients that have really significant burns, all of your efforts might mean all of the world for their survival and for their prognosis in the long run. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for all your hard work that you do out there, the time and the effort that you spend honing your craft, listening to podcasts like this or studying on your own, challenging the norms and not getting complacent with your medicine. Thank you for all that stuff that you do. And as always, please have a safe shift. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to Nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dot Van Epps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falk.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.